You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. And um, I just first off want to remind you that we'll be taking communion a little bit later here in the service. So if you haven't had a chance to do so, um, go ahead and grab some elements, whatever's going to be the bread and cup for you this morning. Um, it has been an eventful week, uh, especially as we talk about the conflict in Ukraine. Um, I know. Well, Aaron's going to be talking a little bit more about that later in the service, as he mentioned um, earlier this morning. Um, but wow, it seems like there is just always something new happening. Um, the brokenness of us as human beings, um, I suppose, never fails to surprise me. Um, and yet here we are. Uh, dealing with uh, another um, world conflict. And um, whatever that means, you know, these political issues are so unbelievably complicated. Um, but at their heart, I'm always reminded that the God that we talk about, um, the God of the people of Israel, is a God of the marginalized and the oppressed. So at the end of the day, when we see conflict happening, um, when we see atrocities happening, um, I am always inclined to look at who holds power in the midst of a struggle. Um, so what's happening here in Ukraine is certainly a very complicated, very, very long conflict. Um, but as we seek for peace in this place, it has to come um, at the changing of power dynamics. And that's hard for, it's hard for us to say as currently the superpower of the world is that we are often in that position ourselves. So this stuff is so unbelievably complicated. And I know sometimes it looks really simple, um, but uh, my prayer is that we will be people of peace and justice. And it's hard to know what that means when um, it is a global conflict on the other side of the world, what influence we can have and what we as individuals or we as Central Avenue Church can do. We are part of bigger and larger systems. Um, and so all of that is a part of our prayer uh, this morning. Um, also, of course, this is the final Sunday in Black History Month. So we're going to be uh, talking uh, again and sharing um, voices of, of Black people and Black experiences here. And as I've said throughout this month, um, this is just uh, a time that we especially set aside to make sure those voices are raised. It's a reminder that we need to continually be sharing voices of marginalized and oppressed peoples. Um, so this morning, I want to do that in two ways. Um, as we open in prayer, I'm going to share with you um, a hymn 
um, that you may have heard in the last few days called uh, Prayer for Ukraine, written from 1885. And it has been a, a hymn of the Orthodox Church in uh, Ukraine um, and has been an important part of their history. Um, and I'm also going to share with you um, words from Reverend Carol Thomas Sissel uh, as part of our liturgy this morning. And she is a, a black pastor of a Unitarian church uh, in Pennsylvania. And I'm sharing it specifically because this uh, piece that she wrote um, speaks specifically from uh, a black perspective about churches like ours um, that are progressive, uh, that are affirming, that are involved in advocates of social justice. Um, so as we start, would you join me in prayer? God of hope. God of the marginalized and the oppressed. It's so hard for us to understand what it means to engage in huge systemic issues. And yet that's what you've called us to do, to be a part of transformation and change in our own histories here in the United States in conflict we see around the world. Whether it means lifting up and centering voices of black and gay and marginalized people here, whether it means shining a light and raising our voices, being advocates for transformation and change on the world stage. Show us how we can be moved, how we can be an embodiment of your love and your transformation and your justice. Amen. These are the words from Prayer for Ukraine. Lord, O oh the great almighty, protect our beloved Ukraine. Bless her with freedom and light of your holy rays. With yearning and knowledge enlighten us, your children small. In love pure and everlasting, let us, O oh Lord, grow. We pray, O oh Lord almighty, protect our beloved Ukraine. Grant our people and country all your kindness and grace. Bless us with freedom. Bless us with wisdom. Guide into kind world. Bless us, O oh Lord, with good fortune forever and evermore. This brief prayer was shared by Beth Moore, who is a a uh, person I have a lot of theological disagreements with, but um, I thought it was succinct and um, and raw and heartfelt. She says, Jesus, be near the frightened, the suffering, the fleeing, the hiding, the shivering, the aching, the bleeding, and the dying on this globe tonight. Send word of your mercy, reaching them as we pray for your outstretched arms to save. Rush to aid, be swift to shield. 
be made known, Jesus. And I'll simply add, be known through us, your people. Amen. And this reflection, I'm bringing things together here from Reverend Carol Thomas Sissel of the Unitarian Universalist Church. It's titled, Words Matter. Diverse, multicultural, inclusive, welcoming. If I made a list of every single progressive congregation I had served, visited, or worshiped at, they would have a few things in common, including the use of these words. Perhaps on the front of the order of service or scrolling across the homepage of their website, maybe they've been emblazoned on a rainbow colored banner hanging in the sanctuary. Wherever they are, more often than not, the words are proudly combined with another expression that's been embraced in everyday vernacular. All are welcome here. I know why they're used so freely. Initially, I feel embraced by them. There's a warmth of recognition when my eyes first catch and capture their sight. A sense of being acknowledged and valued moves me from heart to head and then a smile sets on my lips. My heart blooms. I feel like the welcome table has been set for me and I'm eager to pull up a chair. All of this takes place in an unmeasurable instant. In the next moment, it is tempered. I remember past experiences and unconsciously recalculate the measure of my response. The petals of my heart close a bit, protecting the delicate stigma and stamina that lie within. Fear of disappointment rises within me like the sun. I love those words, what they promise, but I have been repeatedly disappointed. It is simply not enough to print them on an order of worship or in a newsletter. They must have meaning and intention at their core. A desire for multicultural worship is wonderful, but it will never flower if that seed of yearning is not nurtured by a commitment and a plan. Longing for diversity of race, gender, or age is only a beginning. It calls for caring and creative programming. Our congregations are primarily white, female, and over 60. If we're to serve into the future, this must change. I believe that we can transform first ourselves and then the world. I am injured repeatedly when we do not. But when we use words just for the sake of using them, I am hurt. Without true resolve, planning and measurable goals behind the things that I see, my trust and hopes are broken anew. On too many occasion, excuse me, on too many occasions and in too many places, these words and these ideals um, are just given lip service. Words matter. They lift and hold us. They illuminate the future and shower us with possibilities. When misused, they hurt. Verbal cuts and abrasions sting. Language leaves wounds that become scars. Words matter. If you and your congregation are not ready to meet the promise that you craft and then share with the world, then stop publishing them. Please don't invite me to sit at your table unless you have a warm, satisfying meal to serve. It doesn't have to be a gourmet feast. A potluck is fine. The souffle may be only half risen. The cookies might be burned on the edges. The pasta can be overcooked. That's okay. 
I'm starving. What it must be is fulfilling, real, made with love, and ready to be eaten. Remember, I believe what you say and write. Words matter. Amen. Thanks for that, Bob. Um, now we'll move into communion. So if you haven't had a chance yet, um, please feel free to grab something you have nearby um, that will serve as the elements for you this morning. Um, if, if you're not familiar and not used to doing this with us in the virtual space, um, we just use what we have in our own homes, in our own spaces, um, and uh, use them as the bread and the, and the wine. Um, I'm going to read a short poem um, and followed by a um, short prayer. Um, it, with Bob's reading, with um, what's already been noted going on in the world these days, um, in some ways, uh, one of the most poignant ways uh, we can we can um, we can act as a body um, is to engage in the practice of communion. Um, and I say that because it, the way we do it, um, you know, there's nothing magic to it. Um, everyone is welcome. There's not um, magic words that uh, do anything to the bread or the, or the wine, but it's a remembrance of how interconnected we all are. Um, and I'm sure as you're, I'm sure as you're aware, um, there are likely thousands and thousands of people across the uh, across the entire world, including Russia, the U.S., and Ukraine, that are all taking communion this morning. And it's weird to think of the the fact that um, soldiers, literally uh, in the midst of, of war and killing each other, are both praying to the same God. <laughs> Uh, both uh, taking communion in an act of, uh, of um, coming together or uh, remembrance of Christ. And I, what do we do with that? We can do a lot of things with that, right? Um, for me, that raises a lot of questions. Uh, it raises a lot of sadness um, of, of wondering how we've gone <laughs> so far um, from, from the meaning of communion and the words of communion. And, right, there is in some ways some glimmer of, of hope in that for me. Um, there's some reminder that beneath all of these layers that, we're, um, that we operate under, beneath the uniforms and the flags and the weapons, um, there's this longing uh, to connect. There's this longing to connect um, with the divine, with God, whatever we want to give a name for and a longing to connect with each other. Um, you know, we've seen, I think it was talked about a little bit um, earlier, but we've seen throughout this whole week, stories coming out of Ukraine, stories coming out of Russia, stories coming out from all over the world of people who are tired of war, right? Um, and, you know, and it's a reminder that um, the powers and the, uh, the, the wealth that dictates what most of the world does um, is no longer uh, having the same sort of impact and effect on at least our opinions. Um, so where we go as a people of the world, we'll see together. But again, there's a hopefulness in seeing that so many Russians don't want this war. 
Uh, Ukrainians obviously don't want this war. Uh, people across the world, people in the U.S. who have been so divided on so many topics are finding common ground of saying, yeah, this is this is ridiculous. Obviously, none of these are um, 100% sort of things, but there is a new world to be made, uh, I guess is my point. And it seems like there are pe- more and more people waking up that a new world can possibly be made. And so when we engage in communion each week, it is a reminder of a new world. Um, And we might define it a little differently than others, um, but it is the act, the physical act of remembering right, uh, a new world that Christ has inaugurated, that Christ calls us into of justice, of peace, of love, um, of, of grace and mercy. Um, so we do that this morning um, in just a moment. So I'll read this poem. It's uh, by Ukrainian um, poet Ilya Kaminsky. I came across it. It was, I think it was just written a couple of years ago. I came across it a couple of years and it moved me um, very deeply. I went and immediately bought the book. Um, it's from the book Deaf Republic. Um, it's a collection of poems that he's written over the last decade or so. Uh, but this one especially is one of his um, most um, famous or popular ones. And then I'll read a prayer from um, actually the Church of Ireland um, written specifically for the Ukrainian uh, conflict. So um, if you have your elements, um, hear these words. This poem is called, We Lived Happily During the War. And when they bombed other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed, around my bed, America was falling. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In the sixth month of the disastrous rain in the house of money, in the street of money, in the city of money, in the country of money, our great country of money, we, forgive us, lived happily during the war. Let's pray. O oh God, who is knit together in one family, all nations of the earth, remove far from us the evil of war. Pour out upon the leaders of the nations your spirit of peace. Restrain the passions of those who plan aggression. Strengthen the hands of those who strive for justice and peace. And hasten the time when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. With that, I invite you to take the bread, what you have today, in the cup and to take them in remembrance and in commitment to a new world. Amen. Thanks, Max. We only have one announcement this week, and it is to remind you guys that we will be back in person next Sunday. 
Um, we will also be still having a Zoom option for those who are not in town or feel safer at home still. So that's it for today. Uh, handing off to you, Aaron. All right, thanks, Angie. So uh, prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving. Um, if you have something you wanna share that's going on in your life, um, you can unmute and raise your voice now. Anybody? Yeah, uh, Aaron, I just want, um, uh, so my family has a lot of connections to uh, Ukraine and uh, Eastern Europe. So it's been a kind of a pretty horrifying couple of weeks here. Um, in particular, my niece, um, married a ukrainian in uh, november and so she was in ukraine uh when the war broke out so she and her husband um had to uh, obviously sort of uh go to the border uh they were able to get to uh, into romania and uh they they made it to berlin so they're safe but his family is uh, uh all still in ukraine um so it'd be great to pray for them and and there's a bunch of others too many to kind of to sort of go through, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a horrible, it's everything about it is horrible. So, yeah. Are they, in, can I ask, are they in Kiev? Um, his family, his, his family. family. Yeah. Yeah. His family, thankfully are in the Western part of, okay. uh, of, uh, Ukraine. So, yeah. um, not in a tiny little town, but, a, yeah. a, a you know, sort of smallish, uh, city. There has been some uh, air raids and that kind of thing in that part of the country, but uh, yeah, as, as you know from, from the news, a lot of the the, the intense fightings in the northeast and in the south and and uh, and all that. But uh, you know, they're obviously after the entire country, so yeah. um, you know, it's kind of. And his brother, um, my niece's husband's brother, is in the army, and so um, I don't know if they really know what's going on um or if they have any updates on him um but um and, and there, there's other um there's a refugee family that my um my sister had gotten to know quite well that was in uh Kharkiv uh and they had to uh, flee uh, they were they were you know literally hiding in the subway um <laughs> with everyone else and and had to you know load up on a on a train took, took them 25 hours uh, on the train to get to the border yeah. Um, but they were able to uh, uh, to get across um, and some other <clears throat> some other folks in uh, the eastern part of Ukraine that um, some of my family has uh, volunteered at the camp uh, that they run in the eastern part of Ukraine that uh, they're all still there. And, um, you know, again, it's, you know, air raids and, you know, just sort of waiting for, for the army to arrive and all that kind of stuff. So it's. Um, yeah. yeah, it's 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 you know uh, it's a horrible situation. You know, and um, Emily actually has a friend that uh, lives in Ukraine and made it across the Polish border this uh, this week. It took her 24 hours, uh, you know, to do so, um, and she barely got out. Um, so I mean, you know, we're a small community. This this church and we have, you know, obviously like you, we, we know people there. So let's, this is deeply personal. Let's, let's remember that there's lots of people around us uh, with connections to this, to this country and the people in it. And let's, let's continue to keep them in prayer, but let's pray right now. Loving God, we lift up um, Abe's family and Abe's uh, family's friends uh, and all those in our, in our circle um in each of our lives that might be connected to people in Ukraine. We pray for their well-being. We pray for the end to 
end to hostilities. We pray for international relief and for refugees to be given asylum and sanctuary and, and aid. Uh, we just we just pray for hearts and minds uh, to be changed, and that um, we as a gosh as a global community might know how best to care right now for those uh, in in Ukraine in Eastern Europe who are. Um, on the run and and concern for their very lives, but we pray for all those uh, that that we know, our friends, our family, uh, who are uh, in the middle of this. We lift them up now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, anybody else this morning? All right. With that, Max, I will hand it over to you. Sure, thanks. Um, for this final uh, Sunday in um, Black History Month, and this final Sunday virtual, fully virtual for now, um, I have a music video we'll play um, by Leon Bridges. Um, this one is called Sweeter, um, and it's just a wonderful, beautiful, uh, haunting song as many of his are um, so I hope you enjoy <clears throat> Why 
So today is the final installment in our short church history series, and we're finishing by looking at the church in the modern world, and in particular, the church in America, which is to say, I want us to look at the history of evangelicalism today, as that's our context. But before we do so, I think it behooves us to look briefly at what's happening in Ukraine as a piece of church history potentially unfolding before our very eyes. You know, here we are, here we are in, a, in a series on church history with church history you know, potentially unfolding before our very eyes. So you know, let's talk about it a little bit. Um, uh, according to Putin, one of the main reasons why, again, this is according to him, uh, one of the main reasons why he has invaded Ukraine is theological. He claims his spiritual destiny is to rebuild Christendom which is essentially the complete merging of state power with the church and was how, if you've been here during this series or if you know your church history, uh, Christendom was how medieval Europe was set up. Christendom was a Christian empire overseen by the Pope, at least in the Western church. Uh, you know, Putin's goal, he claims, is to resurrect this uh, and to have this new Christian empire based in Moscow. Uh, around this idea of holy Russia. But in order to accomplish this, he needs Kyiv, which is, of course, the Ukrainian capital. And uh, more importantly, this is where the Russian Orthodox Church began in the year 988. Now, it's, it's totally possible, and I think probable, that Putin couldn't care less about Christianity. I see him as like, you know, Trump's kind of Christianity. Uh, uh, he ha in my opinion, he, he has no sincere Christian faith. Uh, and is merely posturing in order to wield the powerful Russian Orthodox Church in his favor. But regardless of whatever he might believe in his heart, uh, he is deliberately using the church and Christianity and theology uh, and a keen awareness of, of church history in order to achieve uh, his imperialistic goals. He is using state power and violence in the name of God, to some degree, uh, to recreate you know, holy Russia or Christendom. Yeah, this, is, this is a textbook definition of what the German theologian, uh, liberation theologian, I should say, Dorothy Soleil, what she called Christo-fascism, or that's, that's short for Christian fascism. Christo-fascism is the linking of Christianity with state violence and state power. It is the belief that God calls us to impose our beliefs or our religion on others through the apparatus of the state, meaning, you know, legislation, courts, uh, you know, the executive branch, or the police, military, whatever. Right? It, uh, Christofascism combines nationalism uh, and this glorification of one's national identity with, with Christianity. Uh, it's, it's the cross draped with the flag whether it's the Russian flag or the American flag. It's, it's the belief that America or Russia is a Christian nation and has a divine calling to, uh, in some ways, impose Christianity or Christian theology on others. Christofascism probably began with uh, Constantine in the fourth century, who was the Roman emperor 
that made Christianity the de facto state religion of Rome. And, and he used the church as a way of manipulating or, or maintaining political control over Europe and North Africa. And then, of course, there was, there was the Crusades, which is perhaps the most bloody example of Christo-fascism in church history. But then, of course, came the colonial era with you know, the Spanish conquistadors and the Portuguese and the English and all the other quasi-Christian monarchies and colonial powers of Europe who, who came to the New World carrying a, a sword in one hand and the Bible in the other. Right? This is Christo-fascism, and it's long and bloody history in the church and, and in, within uh, Western history. And the latest chapter of it is perhaps unfolding before our very eyes in Ukraine. But, but this is not really what I want to talk about today. Um, we can talk about it, but uh, I really want to talk specifically about American church history, particularly the history of evangelicalism, and Christo-fascism is a part of that too. Uh, and we'll get to that. I've been reading uh, a really good book about the history of evangelicalism lately called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. There's a, there's a title for you. Anybody else uh, reading this or read this? Uh, show of hands. Anybody else read this, this book? Morgan, you, you did? Yeah. Maybe a few others. Yeah. So, um, a lot of my talk today is, is coming from this, but uh, it's a good retelling of American church history, particularly, of course, the history of evangelicalism, which is really you know, American church history to, to a great degree, not entirely, but to a great degree. Uh, I realize that American church, church history is larger than evangelicalism, but in the interest of time, we're going we're gonna to focus on the history of evangelicalism, which is a large portion of the American church and perhaps the most relevant you know, group for us to discuss. Um, but what is an evangelical? Uh, I think that's a good place to start today. Um, I, I think evangelicalism has come to mean something more political than religious today. Uh, whereas in the past, I think that was somewhat reversed. I, I think an evangelical has come to mean someone who is practically theocratic uh, in their persuasions, which is to say quasi Christo-fascist in their views. Evangelicals have gone so far to the right politically and so, so merged nationalism with Christianity that I think many American Christians who just even 10 years ago happily called themselves evangelical no longer do so. So I, I think the term evangelical has become a moniker for a, a Christian who is very conservative both politically and theologically, and holds this strange amalgamation of nationalism and Christianity together. And in fact, many evangelicals in the past few years, like Franklin Graham and, and Pat Buchanan and, and others, they have espoused support for Putin and his Christian nationalism. They, they see his dedication to rebuilding Christendom and holy Russia as something to, to aspire to here even, right? There are actually are a lot of similarities between the, the two fantasies of, of, of Christian America and Holy Russia. There's a lot of similarities between those two fantasies. But again, this, this is Christo-fascism and a big reason why many centrist evangelicals, uh, and I do believe there is such a thing as centrist evangelicals, uh, why so many centrist evangelicals just will not call themselves evangelical anymore. Uh, they want to distance themselves from how evangelicalism is really become uh, personified by the far right. 
So what is, what is the history of this very American expression of Christianity? Let's, let's get into the history of it now. Understanding the etymology of the word evangelical itself, I think, is a good place to start. The word evangelical comes from the Greek word for gospel or good news, uh, euangelion, if I'm pronouncing that correct. It's been, a, it's been a long time since I took Greek. This is where we get the word evangel uh, evangelism from and evangelical. Well, this is what we get, where we get the word evangelism from, too, which, of course, means the proclamation or the, uh, or the preaching of, of the gospel or good news. So the, the term evangelical basically means people of the gospel, people of the good news. Which is, a, which is a good term. I mean, I'm not against the term itself. That's a good term. Uh, the first time this term really came into usage to describe a particular group was during the Protestant Reformation. It was used to simply distinguish between Catholics and Protestants. Martin Luther called the churches who split from the Catholic Church evangelical churches, which just meant um, churches of the gospel or churches of the good news. So originally, someone who was an evangelical was just a Protestant. Protestants were called evangelicals before they were called Protestants, actually. So, you know, sorry, everybody. Uh, we're still evangelicals based upon the original meaning. But obviously, evangelicalism has come to mean something quite different, especially in America. Many people today define an evangelical as someone who basically basically believes in four things. There's, there's more to it than that, but basically four things. One, the authority of scripture. Two, that Jesus Christ is the revelation of the one and only true God. Uh, three, the need for personal salvation through faith in Jesus. And then uh, four, the need for the church to bring a Christian or biblical worldview to bear on the world. Uh, often resulting in the politically conservative Christian nationalism uh, we spoke about earlier. If you believe in at least three of these four things, you're, you're probably an evangelical. So what is the history of this in America? Let's, let's start with recent history and work our way back in time. So we're going to start with recent history and then travel backwards. Modern evangelicalism really got started with the birth of the religious right and the so-called moral majority in the late 70s and early 1980s. What happened was Jimmy Carter wanted to integrate Christian private schools in the South that were refusing to admit black students. Many Southern white Christians, particularly Southern Baptists, wouldn't have it. So in order to stop Carter, prominent evangelicals at the time, like the late Jerry Falwell, he organized support for a candidate that was sympathetic to um, their concerns, Q. Ronald Reagan. But Falwell and others knew they couldn't promote Reagan on the message, you know, uh, vote for Ronnie because he'll keep, keep your schools white. <laughs> uh, they, uh, Falwell and others knew that the public wouldn't put up with such an you know, openly and brazen racist platform. It needed to be more subtle than that. So Falwell and friends made the 1980 election about abortion, an issue that prior to that moment, most evangelicals didn't really care about. When Roe versus Wade passed in 1973, most evangelicals were pro-choice or ambivalent about the issue, um, kind of like Carter was. He was, he was pro-choice. Um, that is until 1980, when, when Falwell and other prominent evangelical pastors and leaders told, told 
Christian America that the only Christian option was pro-life and the only truly pro-life candidate was Ronald Reagan. Because again, Carter, even though he was and still is a devout Christian, you know, he was, he was pretty pro-choice. Um, understand it was totally arbitrary, totally arbitrary that evangelicals made abortion their banner issue. And they only did so to stop Carter because he was going to integrate uh, their schools, primarily in the South. Reagan, of course, was elected in 1980 uh, and modern evangelicalism really solidified then as a political movement aligned strongly with the GOP. But to be clear, to be clear, it was racism and not abortion that was the original catalyst for modern evangelicalism. And yet the history of, of this movement goes back much further than that. We need to understand just how much the social upheavals of the 1960s played a role. The anxieties many American Christians experienced during that time surrounding the issues of race, women's rights, and, and changing sexual morals, all of this contributed to a major pushback in the church, mostly because all of these things threatened the dominance of white straight male uh, do dominance, essentially, white straight Christian male dominance. And this is actually the, uh, the main premise of Dumez's book, Jesus and John Wayne. She basically argues that evangelicalism developed primarily as a reaction against the perceived loss of a particular kind of male identity and male authority in the United States. In other words, she ties the history of evangelicalism almost entirely to patriarchy. She argues that the image of the cowboy, uh, the, Im the image of the pioneer, the, the founding father, the, the strong male protector of both family and nation, she argues that this is not only a major trope within American mythology, but also within the American church. And so because the 20th century in particular brought with it so many changes, you know, politically, technologically, economically, culturally, religiously, you name it, because of all these major societal systemic changes, the definition of manhood and, and the role that men played in society changed too. And this was seen by many Christians as, as really problematic and kind of threatening. So she argues that the perceived loss of male dominance and male identity in the 20th century is one of the big things that created what we call modern evangelicalism. But we need to go back even further, further than that in time, I think, to 1925 and the Scopes monkey trial in Dayton, Tennessee. This, this was a legal case where John Scopes, a Tennessee high school teacher, was prosecuted for breaking a law which forbid the teaching of evolution in a public school classroom. He was found guilty and fined $100, but his conviction was later overturned on a technicality. In any event, this, this trial attracted national attention. It was all over the radio and the newspapers and revealed just how divided America was on the issue of evolution and its perceived threat to Christianity and, and biblical authority. In a way, the Scopes Monkey Trial became a rallying cry for evangelicals and fundamentalists to, to organize and, and to fight a culture war against science and, and the threat posed by, you know, so-called secular education. And to this day, you know, 100 years later, that culture war remains a big part of what defines evangelicalism and their anxiety surrounding, you know, science and secular education. So let's go back a little further in time now to the revivalism of the, 
of the first and second great awakening, which took place um, in the 19th and 18th centuries. It, these were religious revivals that often occurred on what was then the frontier, right? And, and these revivals were typified by dramatic conversion experiences in this sense that God was moving in special ways in America. Uh, and with, with, America, with American revivalism always came this eschatology that America had a special role to play at this, right, the end of history. And therefore, America must live up to its divine calling to be a Christian nation and, and to be that city on a hill. This kind of revivalism has always been part, a big part of the American church experience and, and the identity of evangelicals. As a former evangelical myself, I, I grew up in churches where I heard all the time that a revival is coming. Get ready. You know, a revival is coming that's going to uh, turn America's heart back to God. So, you know, stay pure, keep the faith, keep coming to church, and, and you'll be a part of this revival, right? That, that was constantly being drilled into me. Uh, but in order to really understand evangelicalism, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of our country and the early European Christian settlers who believed that they were chosen by God to come here, seize the land, and set up a kind of God-fearing nation. One cannot understand modern evangelicalism and, and the American church, in my opinion, without understanding how grounded it is in this original doctrine of chosenness and its twin children named Manifest Destiny and the White Man's Burden. Manifest Destiny was this belief um, that whites were divinely ordained to expand westward and seize new territory. The white man's burden was the similar idea that white European Christians had a responsibility and even a divine calling to both convert and civilize other lesser races and, and cultures. And these, these ideas would come to form really the foundation for what would become um, American evangelicalism. And, and this is why many evangelicals today are very patriotic and nationalistic because they believe like their ancestors, that America is a chosen nation and, you know, chosen for a special purpose at this, the end of history. You know, they, they believe that white European Christians were chosen to come here, uh, you know, to seize the land and displace its native inhabitants uh, to accomplish the will of God. And, and this doctrine of chosenness doesn't end there, but extends into all facets of life. It's it's what lies behind this idea that, that men are chosen to lead families and chosen to lead the church and women are not. Capitalism is a chosen economic system and socialism is not. Straight heterosexual marriage right, between one man and one woman is the only form of chosen marriage, right? And gay marriage or same-sex marriage is not. The list could go on. This, this doctrine of chosenness permeates all of evangelicalism and it is probably the single most defining characteristic of evangelicalism. As, uh, as Tad DeLay says, it's really the idea that everything else is predicated upon. And it's, it's the one truly non-negotiable tenet. Evangelicalism is really about believing in a, in a chosen social hierarchy, which is to say it's about the belief in a God who ordains you know, such, such social hierarchies, a God who chooses certain nations, certain races, classes, religions, and genders over others, and insists that these social hierarchies be maintained, you know, for our own good, of course, we're told. So 
that's a, a brief history of evangelicalism, uh, at least as I see it, uh, as a unique expression of American Christianity that began uh, with our nation's inception. I, I covered a lot here in 15 minutes, <laughs> uh, including what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and uh, I'm curious now to hear your thoughts about any of this. Uh, anything goes, any, any questions or comments about any of this today? Yes, we should do a book club on Jesus and John Wayne. I'm just seeing the comments now. I was um, thinking a little bit on the part you were talking about, like growing up, like a revival's coming, a revival's coming in evangelicalism. For me, um, it was almost like a step further. It was like, shame on you that you haven't made one yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking about kind of like living in in that fervency and how exhausting and and shameful it can be and yeah yeah, no like further conclusions just that thought no totally it was intense and it was like i mean i remember it from the 1980s there was always this revival that's coming that's gonna turn america and it was always grandiose it was never like just localized to our church it was always like this is going to turn america's heart back to god and you have a calling to be a part of that. It's very, very much like that. Yeah. Interesting. Other thoughts? Well, I don't know about you. know I have thoughts. Yeah, go ahead, Emily. <laughs> um, you know, it, I think one thought that sort of strikes me, and I'm sorry that I you can't see my face. Um, <laughs> It's, I don't know what's wrong with our computer, but it's almost like teaching things without the history of how it became is like completely, um, I think a way of like manipulation, just like history. Well, we're teaching history without black, the, the black experience. And then we're saying, well, these statues shouldn't be taken down and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're, you're not teaching people where things came from so that they have a choice to believe or not believe or whatever. Um, it's the same thing with this, like a lot of Christians don't know that the abortion was the issue that was brought up to basically you know, take over. And that's essentially what they're trying to do. They're trying to take over with this terrible Christian mindset that they're better than everyone else uh, with their whiteness, with their maleness, with their um, manipulation. And it's just super gross. And I went to one of those churches that, um, you know, I don't know if anyone on here, I know Aaron, I told you when we had dinner that one time, but um, I went to church with the abortion clinic bomber of 1984. um, And the, Another guy, Michael Schmidt, um, he, or Spinks, he murdered an abortion clinic doctor. And it's, you know, Mike Bray, the bomber, still runs, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the God's Army. Um, he's the one who runs that. It's super disgusting and gross. Um, I grew up around all of it. And it just, hearing 
where I just listened to a three-part um, podcast. It's called Behind the Bastards. And they basically just talk about like all these people that we thought were these leaders and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, what, what is their history? Where do they come from? And it was a three-part thing on Jerry Falwell. And that's when I was like, wow, that's where the abortion uh, thing came from. And now we're in 2020 or 2016 and we have a lot of one issue voters voting for Trump and that's how Trump got into the office. And it was just like, wow, we're still here and people have no idea what actually happened or how it happened or how they even came to this you know, belief that they are fundamentally not willing to discuss or deal with anything. And there's so much propaganda that puts that continues again we're with the manipulation of these people who are still in it and i mean i'm friends with a lot of them on on um facebook and they come at me like well you know i've had one guy say that he I, you can't be saying these things in support of gay and trans people and be aligned with christianity huh yeah you're the one who can't be aligned with christianity when you're pooping on all of these marginalized people. You know what I mean? It's like, they're not getting it. And I I don't understand how you don't, if you have a brain in your head, none of it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely hear your frustration. uh, (laughs) All over because there's so many things in there just flying around. You let me, before I forget, can you send me a link to that podcast? I tried to find it because um, Ashley and Jesus told me about it and I, sorry, I couldn't find it. That three part series. That three-part series uh, you're talking about, can you send me a link to that? Um, yeah. Eventually, you don't have to do it right now. Uh, yeah, the, the, you, you kept on going back to this idea of the disconnect from history. Um, that is actually really important to maintain if you're going to keep people in the dark and to maintain you know, the propaganda machine and, and right. the level of, of ignorance and naivete. It, controlling, controlling history, controlling who knows history uh, is, is really key to that. Um, because once, you know, deconstruction really is in a way, you think about it, what is deconstruction? But it's kind of like knowing your history. Uh, and once you, once, once you know your history about the church and about what actually has transpired in your own context, things become complicated real fast and, you know, nothing, nothing, you know, what, what we've been told kind of falls apart. So you see that a lot today with a lot of both, evangelicals and secular people on the right wanting to stop critical race theory in schools. Well, what they call critical race theory, which they basically mean is the, you know, the proper telling of, you know, know, controlling history and who gets to know history is a big part of that. Um, You just made me think of that. Really good point. Yeah. Um, Other thoughts, anybody else want to jump in? I mean that's 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 why we do a hist- that's why we do history series here at Central every year and a half or so because I find it important to revisit history on a regular basis. Um, not that I'm a historian, I'm not, but I I, I do my best. And and to be clear, I didn't. As of this week, I prior to this week, I did not know that Putin was deeply theological about his aspirations regarding, you know, reestablishing Holy Russia and Christendom and the fact that he has gone as far to, you know, say as much as being a, a motivation for turning, turning West and, and stacking Ukraine, specifically this, you know, Kiev, 
which is where the Russian Orthodox Church began in 90. I, I didn't know that he was a Christian nationalist prior to this week. Maybe I wasn't paying very good attention, but uh, specifically evangelicals like Franklin Graham, Pat Buchanan, and others for years have been praising him for his commitment to Christian nationalism. And I haven't seen, I did not know that. Uh, now, right now, I think that I think they're holding their tongue or they're 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 trying to, you know, do some damage control about about some of that because they realize that this is a, a bad PR move to speak nice about Putin right now. But I did not know that Putin had these Christian nationalist aspirations. Uh, did, did anybody else? Know? I would say, to be fair, I mean, it seems akin to saying that. Trump has deeply theological oh, yeah. reasons, oh. right? Just in the yeah, sense no. of like, no, Putin knows far better than Trump and most others how to wield and maintain power, right? And I think he's pulling the lever of that that nationalism and that sentiment. But I don't think for a second that Putin is a <laughs> is actually driven by the thought of bringing glory to God by restoring, right. right? Yeah. So in that respect, it's like, oh, sure. Yeah, he will He will use any any lever he can get his hand on to control yeah. and maintain power and expand. But, but my, my, so my point is, not, so yeah, and, and I totally agree. But my point is, what's the difference? You know, whether or not he really believes in it or not, that's what he's doing. And that's what he's, he's, he's invoking. Right. He's invoking the name of Christ uh, and sure. Holy Russia, uh, you, whether... Yeah, whatever he feels in his heart of heart, right? Heart is, is irrelevant to me, you know. Right. I was just com- commenting on that. Did anyone else realize like that yes. Putin had to? Yeah, I was like, I don't think he does. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think you're exactly right. It's interesting. Yeah. Anybody else want to jump in? I do. Um, <clears throat> a while back, hey. Uh, it's been a little while. I saw yeah. a, a documentary on Netflix about the linking of like the prayer breakfast, national prayer breakfast with like Russia and this ideology. Um, I don't remember what it was called, but it's but it's it's on Netflix. And I remember when I was uh, at Liberty and Thomas Road and all that and always hearing about, you know, national prayer breakfast and certain things. And um, it's ironic because when I was in high school, in, um, <clears throat> we were doing ministry, and there was this thing that they would do every once in a while where a bunch of kids would go to Ukraine and build churches. And so a bunch of my friends, circle from that time, have all been to Ukraine, but they're of the more, uh, let's just say, evangelical kind of view, like what you talked about. So I don't know where they stand <laughs> it's really yeah. it's it's a it's a strange thing because back then um this was 96 something like that so this was um more about um helping people post cold war post ussr and and the ussr had been like atheists and all that kind of stuff um but i think those links were were already there and um i don't know it's there's a lot of things there that are complicated. I don't know much about, but yeah. I had a sense that there was something. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I think I the name to... of that 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 special on Netflix is The Family. I, I think yeah. that's it. Rodney's saying, yeah. I think that's it. So I wanted to kind of pose a question, really. Um, I'm just kind of thinking about, so my grandfather was a pastor, 
um, in the Congo, you know, uh, probably evangelical of some kind. Um, you know, I've been learning a lot about the culture of the area, the Congo. There was an empire there long before Christianity, um, monotheistic somehow, but not, you know. Um, and that culture is basically gone. Um, the religion that was there is in terms of the modern world, like the modern people there today, it's like seen as superstition. Um, there are people who practice like indigenous, I don't know if it's the same or variations of the same, but it's like considered witchcraft and stuff like that. And some of it is, you know, dark, some of it is, I don't know, whatever they believe. Um, you know, I'm someone who, obviously I'm a Christian, this is my faith, this is how I, I see and navigate the world at the same time. In the bigger context of what you're saying, um, the fact is I am a colonized person who cannot be another way, who I will never be what free Christian than whatever you want to call it would have uh, encountered, mm. right? And so I think that's a story that exists throughout the world in different ways and different versions. Um, I would just put it out there to you or anyone, like what should someone or people like me make of that? Wow. Um, hey, hey, can I just jump in on that? Um, yeah, please. I, go ahead. I, I was going to like... I, I would like one of the speeches at the UN that was given last week from the Kenyan ambassador spoke kind of to that point. And uh, if, if you're not, if you haven't read it or, or listened to it, I, I, I thought it was incredibly moving and probably uh, uh, the best sort of um, articulation of kind of what the, the, the sort of the conflict uh, that were. Hey, that hey, did were you say did you say the Kenyan ambassador? Just to be clear. Yeah, the, yes, the Kenyan ambassador. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, and because uh, basically, uh, you know, just in summary, he was much more eloquent <laughs> uh, about it. But um, in summary, it's, it's acknowledging that the borders that exist uh, for him and for people all over the world were imposed uh, upon them uh, by imperial powers. Um, but there is also a sense of um, that that can't be changed, uh, but that they are building, um, th that there, it is worth um, uh, sort of fighting back and defending um, uh, the right to, to determine your own national borders, even if they have been essentially established by, uh, by imperial powers, you know, because basically that's, that's what Putin is doing. He's basically just saying, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter that, you know, you've had independence for 30 years. Uh, I'm just going to move in because it used to be mine. And so it's mine now, you know, and, and basically if, if there is no sort of pushback on that, it, you know, it's just, it, 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 it's what, what becomes of the entire world. If, if we just sort of think that's, if that's just acceptable now. Um, and so um, I just thought, again, it's a very complicated issue and difficult, but I just thought like the, that speech was uh, just very articulate, I thought, and really spoke to some of the complexity, I guess, of, of this moment. Yeah, thanks, Abe. That's a really good point. You know, and JP, I, you know, I, I feel like in some ways, you know, we have to recognize that 
you know, that, that every culture is, um, how am I going to put this? Basically, every, every culture's um, ideologies, be they religious, whatever, social constructs, you know, in a way, nothing is entirely original. <laughs> you know, everything, even before the modern era, even before, you know, the European colonization of the world, you know, um, you know, cultures were colonizing other cultures. You know, you look at even biblical history and what took place between the Akkadians and the Israelites and the Babylonians and then the Greeks and the Romans, and, you know, uh, the Persians, you know, I, you can name all of these different cultures that influenced each other. That, and, you know, as Kester Bruin says, everything is a remix. That's putting it in a modern term. You know, nothing, nothing is entirely novel. Uh, everything comes from something else. Um, and I, I don't say that as a way of excusing colonization by any means, you know that. Uh, and Abe, as Abe said, you know, the Kenyan ambassador was wrestling with the fact that all of our borders were drawn by imperial powers. And in that sense, we're products of horrific oppression and suffering and, and you know, uh, racism and, and these other horrific things. But in a way, you know, this has always been the world we've lived in and we have to learn how to live in that world. Um, and, you know, the Ukrainians absolutely you know, have a right to defend their border. You know, you know the, there's there's this kind of like, I, it's complicated like that. But I, I think in a way, if we acknowledge the fact that nothing is new under the sun and we're all products of, you know, m millennia and countless, you know, ideas that came before us. Um, I'm saying that we can kind of live into that difficulty and we, we can kind of learn to accept that in a way um, and move forward. Um, and, and in a sense, I think that frees us to choose as well and to say, you know, if everything is, um, you know, essentially, essentially uh, a product of something that came before a remix, then we can kind of, we do get to kind of pick and choose what we want to think and believe and, and the values we want. Um, we, we don't have to listen to some authority figure like a pastor or a pope, you know, who says this is orthodoxy and this is, a, you know, this this kind of lie that somehow, you know, Christianity is novel and this is the divine truth that came out of heaven one day as if it, as if nothing like it ever came before. We, we can acknowledge that, you know, all of these things are in a sense human constructs and we get to choose what we want to believe and to and to value and to hold uh, both as a community as, and as individuals. I think I think understanding history like that frees us in a way, liberates us to really make our own choices. And perhaps that's the best thing we can get from that JP. Um, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Does that make sense? I don't know. It does make sense. I mean, it's, it's just um, something I grapple with because again, it's, um, you know, I always feel like with churches or, or in church history, I feel like there's a movement where there's like a correction you know, and then the people that make the correction think they're right, and then they do the same thing or worse. Yep. And then there's another correction. And like in these, in these moments of, I don't know, insider or whatever, I don't, I guess it, it goes back to the same stuff of, of being humble and that sort of thing. But I, I often wonder if I'm still not like if I'm still a part of the problem because clearly I'm in this lineage of <laughs> whatever it is, you know? And, and so like when, cause when we do this, like everybody I'm assuming here central, for example, we're all roughly 
in the same cultural space and we all understand each other. And, and you know, like, I think the influence that we have on each other is pretty nuanced within the context. But like, when you look at how Christianity was transmitted in the past, it's like a whole sweeping cultural, like what you eat, how you dress, how you talk, how you think, how you read and write. It's a whole thing that came with it. And like, I, you know, today we're like picking, picking stuff apart. Like well, the, the critical race theory issue is like, this is fundamental education and history. What do you teach when? Right. And, but it shapes people's thinking and I, and I get the friction on both sides, but my thing is like, you know, I don't know, I guess I just look at myself and, and I don't know where I, where I am in the, in the, in the space of, um, am I the one that stepped on or am I the one that's stepping on? Maybe or maybe both. we're both. Yeah. So. Uh, you're you're articulating the complexities of being here, being being here now, and there's no escape from that complexity, in my opinion. Well, it's making a, it's trying to organize a mess on top of a mess on top of a mess, which is every century of these egos creating something that theirs is better than yours, and that's why you need to follow this. And then it's almost like we've been in a maze for so long, and I almost think. And this is just, I, I can't speak for anyone else's experience, um, but it's almost like, I don't know if trying to figure out what, what should have been, it's almost like, this is what we have and we may as well make what should be. Um, because then you're, you're taking the mess and you're trying to move forward with organization rather than trying to make organization or another mess out of more messes. You're trying to go through all the messes that were past rather than going forward with the organization of the mess that is current, if that makes any I sense think, at all whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think it does, I, you know, yeah. You know, acknowledging, acknowledging that we're all in a sense, you know, subjects uh, you know, to, you know, uh, broken, broken histories and, and broken cultures and, and ideas that are both, you know, simultaneously liberating and oppressing and, you know, that we're all part of those systems and partaking and participating and, you know, acknowledging that is huge. Uh, and perhaps the only hope we have of, of creating a better future, not a perfect future. There is no such thing, right? Well, I think we must disavow any utopian idealism uh, and learn to live in the world as it really is and make the most of it. I, I think that's, kind of what it means to, for us to be, you know, this kind of radical Christian community in a lot of ways, um, you know, disavow any kind of utopian idealism and or escapism and learn to, you know, live as best as possible uh, in, in the complexities of the here and now. Um, but that's hard. You know, we want the utopia, you know, we want to say, oh, everything is going to be wonderful if we just believe or do this, you know. Anyway, good stuff. I have a thought on that. Yeah. Um, I often find when I'm looking at like really big, you know, big issues that are like too big for me to solve or think of. But if I like whittle it down and try to think of a similar situation in a personal relationship, it clarifies it. So most things like the way we interact personally, if you look at 
giant issues, it's a bigger version of that. It's how countries are interacting, our world leaders are interacting, and it's impacting other people. So when I um, when I think of these kinds of things, like like am I the one who has been stepped on, or am I the one stepping on others? Um, in my case, I think of my parenting. Like I can look at my upbringing and I can see lots of harm that was brought to me by my my family of origin. Um, um, complicated situations. They were, you know, I can look back and say genuinely, they loved me. They were doing the best they could with what they had, but they didn't have the tools to fix what was what they had brought from their history. And so I can look back, I look back and I see, I don't want that A, B, or C in my family and the way I raise my children. So like a pendulum, I can sometimes swing too far and I create other problems. I'm trying to solve one problem and I'm creating another problem. But in that process, I am solving some of the problems. Like I was stepped on, I joke with my kids regularly, my, my grown, now grown children, you know, I just put some more money in your therapy fund. Like I, I, I did the best I could, you know, you're going to go to therapy, you'll figure it out. You'll, you know, I, I'm an open book about where I failed or where I succeeded or where I don't know. But I think it's the same thing on the world stage or in the church history or whatever, very often it is, if we're trying to be authentic and we're trying to look with open eyes, we look back and we see something in, in our, you know, history, world history, church history, you know, national history, whatever. And we see where things went awry and we try to fix them. And sometimes they're in, um, unintended consequences of our attempted repairs. And all we can do is the best we can do. If we're genuinely doing the best we can do, then, you know, on whatever stage that is, then there's nothing else that that's it. So just a thought. That's really good. Really good. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really helpful. And I think to sum that whole thing up, I think the whole stepping on, I think a lot of that has to do with ego and humble. Most of the time, the people that are stepping on are coming from ego. And most of the people that are being stepped on are being stepped on by the ego, but they're being humble. And I think as long as you lead with humbleness and with a humble heart and great intentions, I think you, you can err on the side of you're most likely not going to step on people. But if you do, you'll recognize it. And I think that that's sort of important too, is to be aware of what it is that you're, what, what is your imprint on yeah. the people around you? Yeah. And to be willing to hear from them. I think that's a, a huge key, like to be willing. I'm willing for my kids in my case to tell me where I'm, I may be doing something that's hurting them and change, make changes. That's, yeah. That's really healthy and, and huge. And as you said, Anne, crosses from the, from the micro to the macro, right? Crosses from, you know, our personal relationships into how we behave as communities uh, and a society. Yeah, that's really good. 
Um, all right. Well, 11.32, uh, we like to keep it around 11.30, everybody. We had a great conversation this week, covered a lot, um, maybe maybe too much, <laughs> but uh, we resume in-person service next week. Um, so I look forward to seeing you there. Um, but yeah, we are dismissed. You can hang out and chat a little longer if you'd like, but we are dismissed. Thank you for being here. <laughs>